Welcome to Bridging the Generation Podcast. I'm your host, Malak Ari. And today I got a very, very special treat for y'all. Uh, coming to the platform, my next guest has and his group has sold over 20 million records. Uh, they've also accumulated over 40 top 20 hits, 12 top 10 hits, and a number one single. Uh, they're known for hits such as Shining Star, Kiss and Say Goodbye, Wish That You Were Mine, and he's also had a stellar solo career as well. With all that being said, it's an honor and it's a pleasure to introduce my next guest, the one and only Mr. Gerald Austin of the Manhattans. Let's go. Mr. Austin, man, you look good, brother. Thank you. Thank you. All is well. All is well. Feeling great and ready to go back to work. <laughs> oh, I know that's right. I know that's right. I, I know you recently um getting over a case of, uh, you know, uh, uh, bronchitis, man. So yeah. it's good to see you. You look amazing, brother. Thank you. So how's everything, you know, with, um I, like you just mentioned, um you, you're ready to go back to work. How has this whole lockdown, so to speak, this COVID-19 um you know, but Bonanza, how has this uh, affected you? Well, um, house fever. <laughs> mm, talk about it. And um, but it's all been it's all been um, going pretty good. Okay. Um, I was recording. I finished up our new CD. Mm-hmm. And uh, <coughs> excuse me with this cough. That's okay, sir. I finished up our new CD, and. Um, we I've been doing lots of promotion, mm. lots of promotion, which is good, and um, spending time with the family. That's good. Yeah. That's always a good thing. So I, you know, I always gotta ask my guests to make sure that they, you know, that the spirits is good. Like you're one of my favorite artists. Period. Not R and B artists, but one of my favorite artists. And you know, I have to say, brother, this is a dream come true. This is an honor and a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so look, brother, I wanna I wanna start from the beginning because I'm a diehard fan. Okay. And what I do is I go into this catalog a little bit. I don't want to keep you here for a long time, brother, but we have to put some respect on this catalog. So with that being said, brother, I know you're from uh Henderson, North Carolina. That's correct. Talk talk to me about um how was it growing up in Henderson, North Carolina? Well, Henderson was, is a very small town. And during when I was growing up, everybody knew everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, the street that I lived on <coughs> as a young kid, um, my grandmother lived down the street from me. And I lived with my other grandmother and, and grandfather. Okay. And so it was like family up and down the block. The neighbors knew me. Um, you know, believe me, when you say it, it takes a child, a village to raise a child, 647 Ransom Street is the street I lived on. Still and, remember the address, huh? Yes. And everybody on that block 
had a part of your life. They they would, um, if they caught you wrong, they chastised you, you know? And it was like a big family, you know? And then when um, we moved when I was about 15, and by that time I had been singing, I started singing. And um, my uncle Johnny Fields is, was one of the, the late Johnny Fields was one of the um, uh, founding members of the Five Blind Boys of Alabama. Wow. <clears throat> And my daddy was a singer. My mother was a singer. My father's sisters and brothers were singers. So <coughs> I was around singing, period. Okay. And that's how it all started. Okay, so Mr. Alston, you mentioned that you know, you're know you related to one of the uh, 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 the brothers in the five blind boys of uh, Alabama, correct? Yeah. yeah. Alabama. But you also related to one of the members of the Shirelles as well. Is that oh, true? Yes, yes, surely. Yes. Okay. Okay. So, like I said, uh, you know, when did you realize? Like, matter of fact, let me, let me, let me stop there. I want to ask. This is the million dollar question. I want to know when did you get started singing? Like, what, you know, outside of those influences, what mm -hmm. was the sound like growing up in Henderson, North Carolina? What was played on the radio, R&B station, pop, whatever? What was well, those influences outside of the artists that you just named? We had a radio station that um, went off the air at five o'clock. Mm -hmm. I mean, no, about six o'clock. And it was like <clears throat> basically country and Western. And we would hear R&B music on the weekend and gospel music on the weekend. Okay. Um, but being in the family that I was in, we always were, our family always had something to do with singing. Mm. And um, my, um, my mentor was Sam Cook, you know, and the bottom line was my father, right? No doubt, no doubt. Yeah, Shirley left <clears throat> when I was younger. Okay. And I didn't get a chance to see much of her, but mm. my father and my Uncle Johnny and Sam Cook, okay. they, were, they were the men. No doubt, know? no doubt. Yeah. No and, so, um, go ahead. So that's where it started. And then I started singing in church. Um, now, how old were you around this time? When did you? Church, I sang at a Mother's Day program. Mm. And I had to be about, maybe about five, five or six years old. Okay. And that was the very first time that I really had to sing in public. Mm. And oh. um, I got gun shy. <laughs> when you come out, I started laughing. So a friend of mine walked up to me and started singing in my ear. Uh, yes, Jesus love me. Yes, Jesus love me. Right. Yes, Jesus love me, for the Bible tells me so. And when he started singing, I picked it up and started singing and he walked away and there I was and <laughs> audience went wild and that's when I became a ham. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's right, Mr. Austin. So, so look, so, when did you realize like singing can be a reality? Like this is something that you know what <clears throat> I can I can I can do outside of Henderson, North Carolina. When did you realize that? Well, I realized that at about um, I guess I was fifteen or sixteen. Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> excuse me, we put together a band called Gerald Austin and the New Imperials. My uncle Johnny's oldest son, mm -hmm. he and I sing together all the time, mm. all the time. 
And so we put a he put together we put together a band, and on on Saturday, Friday and Saturday nights we were Gerald Austin and the New Imperials. Okay. And on Sunday morning we were the Gospel Jubilee. No, and um, <clears throat> that's when I really realized that that I could go someplace. You know, mm. we were uh, our group was very uh, active and you know large in in the uh, Virginia. South Carolina, North Carolina area. Okay. And okay. Um, so <laughs> we sang together all through high school. Mm-hmm. And then um, I started to, started the college, uh, junior college right outside of Henderson. Okay. And um, it was called Kittrell Junior College. And okay. the Adams was on tour with the Supremes. Mm. Um, Gene Terrell, the late Mary Wilson, and Cindy Birdsong. And they were mm-hmm. school together. And they stopped, they had some days off. So they performed at my college. And my professor asked me, could they use my sound system? So I went home, got my sound system, set it up, start singing. They heard me sing, asked me to open the show for them. And that was it. They um they called me that that whole weekend. That was like on a Wednesday night. They okay. called me like. Friday, Saturday, and finally <laughs> Sunday. Now, and, which, now, now, who called you? Was that was Blue? Was that was it Blue? No, the manager actually called. Okay. Yeah, and she called, and, and then she told me, "Look, we have a ticket for you to fly into Dallas, Texas." And I'm saying to myself, "Well, I don't have a contract or anything." She told me, "Your parents has already signed your contract, so you have wow. a ticket to Dallas, Texas." So we flew into Dallas. I flew into Dallas, and I watched the um, Manhattans perform with the Supremes for 10 days. Okay. And I flew back to New York, and I rehearsed with the group for, like, maybe three weeks. Mm-hmm. And then, and here I am, 50 wow. years later. So, so look, a lot of people don't know the, the, the back story of the Manhattans, and I'm not going to take too long with this, but prior to you joining the group, uh, the lead singer was George uh, Smitty Smith. Yes, George Smith. And now, now, were you a fan of him? Were you were you a fan of of the Manhattans, or were you a fan of Smith Smitty before you joined the group? When I joined, the, when I before I joined the group, this is funny. I'd seen the Manhattans at the Apollo Theater that summer before. Okay. And then um, they released a song called "If My Lonely If My Lonely Heart Could Speak," mm. and George Smith was singing. And um, but George was sick. George was very sick. When they played at my school, performed at my school, he was sick. He performed that night, and they had a stand-in with him, uh, Blue's cousin Philip Terrell, Philip Flood. Mm. His stage name was Philip Terrell. Okay. And um, <clears throat> so they left there and they went to A and T University, and um, performed there. And Smitty got sick and they had to fly him home. And that's when Philip took over, and then they flew me down to Dallas, and I okay. was. And Smitty passed away on December sixteenth of that same year. Oh man, I, um, that brother had one of the the most soulful voices, man. I I, I love his uh, you know, like the the song you just mentioned, "If My Heart Can Speak." And yeah. uh, you know, he I I I really believe, man. Like if if he 
was still here. I think it would be a, it would have been a way that both of you guys could. I don't know. I don't know, man. That would have been a, that would have been a nasty duo, man. Gerald Austin and, and Smitty, man. Yeah, man. Smitty had a voice. You familiar with Linda Jones? Of course, of okay. course. He he and Linda Jones had a voice. They didn't sound alike, but they had mm. one of those voices that you couldn't duplicate. Mm. Mm. Linda had a voice. I've never heard nobody sing like Linda Jones. Okay, and um, and I've never heard nobody sing like Smitty. Now, when I started singing, I could hit some uh, note like Smitty, or I might could do one of Smitty's runs. Right. But I could not sing like Smitty. And um, I remember my first date that we did in New York. Um, my real first date was in Richmond, but we okay. came back and we worked at a place called the Albee Theater in Brooklyn. Okay. And um, so we were first on the show. Mm. <clears throat> and when when the curtains opened, we were on stage, came out on stage, the curtains opened, and who was sitting on the front row with his arms folded like this. Who's and that? that? Whoa. <laughs> so, so you did get an opportunity to meet Smitty. Yeah, oh, I knew Smitty. I met, knew Smitty before then, but he had never heard me sing. Mm. No, yeah, he had, I'm, I take that back. He heard me sing in um, Kittrell. At okay. The, and, but he hadn't seen me sing with the group. And um, <clears throat> so when I came out, he was sitting there with his arms folded. <laughs> oh God, I was nervous. Spotlight. Show, Spotlight. <laughs> yeah. After the show, he came to the dressing room and gave me the biggest hug and said, You are awesome. And I was then I could relax. I said, Well, I got it made now. You you was anointed. He, yes. he anointed you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so so look, um, you you we, 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 you're being very modest. You're being very modest, Mr. Austin. You talk about Linda Jones, you talk about Smitty, these are great artists, but brother, you have one of the most distinctive tones in R&B soul history. And where did you get that style from? And, and, and in particular, I wanna know, you do this thing where you go, mm, like, where, where did you get that from? I love how you do that, man. Like, that is like one of your signatures. <laughs> you know, phrases and, and singing. So where did you get that style from? How did you develop that unique, distinctive sound that no other artist has been able to duplicate? You know, it's, it's, um, it's my, first of all, my father always taught me to sing from my heart. Mm -hmm. He said, son, you, when you sing, you have to know the song. Mm -hmm. I don't mean just memorizing the lyrics. Mm -hmm. You have to know the story of that song. No doubt. And then he said, you can visualize yourself in there or someone you may know, but put yourself in it. And um, when I started singing, like when I started singing, it got to a point where whatever I felt, I would do at that moment. And if I felt like moaning, I would moan. If I, I felt like uh, yelling, you know, going up and getting rough, I would do it. And it was nothing that I practiced. It all came natural. And I know it was all through... God's grace. No doubt, no doubt. And I, I, I apologize for shredding. That was a, a probably a, a horrible rendition of. <laughs> no, you all right. You're that, was, that was probably a horrible rendition. But you know, you catch me on a good day. I think I can come to about maybe 
50 percent of, of what you, right, right. you know so so i had to ask you me being a doc i love when you hit that when you when you do that man so look i want to fast forward a little bit so 19 i believe 1971 72 you guys signed with deluxe record so talk to yeah. me a little bit about that and, and what 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 other acts did deluxe records have because i to my knowledge i don't really know any other artists that was on deluxe records the main act on deluxe records was james brown and um he was the biggest artist on that label at the time oh because I, I, I thought he was on king yeah king and deluxe were the same label it was a subsidiary of okay. king I had james no brown recorded on king and okay. we recorded on deluxe gotcha. but it was under the same umbrella okay yeah and um we toured with james brown a lot mm. but um our first record <clears throat> was um well i did the first album i did was titled a million to one and right. we did a million to one Oof. i count um it um one life to one live, life to live. Anyway, i yeah. can't stand for you to leave me Oh my God! We did a song called Blackbird. Blackbird, which was on another project too. Yeah, they they CBS bought the masters and put it on another project. Yeah, but um, <clears throat> we recorded that that album. Part part of it was done in New York, and my very first session, very first recording session, was produced by Bert Keys. He did mm. Love Street. He produced that, and. Okay. Um, I um I got in the studio and all of these magnificent and these the music, musicians. Mm. And I don't know if you know or remember, but Chuck Rainey played bass. Of course, the bass, yes, yes. yes. Legendary session musician. Yes, Richard T was on piano. Woo. Um, Purdy was on drums. Bernard Purdy. Bernard Purdy. Come on. Keep going. I, I know them all. Keep going. And Eric Gales was on guitar. Eric Gales. And, and let me say this for the fans real quick. Eric Gales and Richard T was members of this band called Stuff. A lot of people don't remember. That was yes. Steve Cadd. And, yep. and, you know, so he these guys were like the premier session musicians of like the 19, uh, late 60s, 70s, or early 80s. So just, just giving people a little insight. But continue, sir. So when I got into the session, I had never, I've been in a recording session before, but mm -hmm. not in full orchestration. And we recorded it live. And the, no very, way. the very first song that I recorded with that orchestra, because we did um, One Life to, I mean, one, we did that particular session. We did um, um, Do You Ever Think of Me? Mm. Um, I Can't Stand for You to Leave Me and a million to one. Those are the three songs we, we recorded that day. Okay. <laughs> and I remember going into one booth and the guys, the other four singers were in another booth. Mm -hmm. And when um, Richard T and, and um, started off a million and one. Oh, and uh, Richard T and uh, Chuck Rainey started it off because it was, as you know, the song looked, Will have a little gospel flavor. Exactly, no doubt, no and doubt. Boy, those strings came in, and everybody came in. I said, oh "Talk about God. it!" <laughs> and one take, it was over. Wow, one, it was over. 
That's amazing. Cause that that song, that song is a classic. I feel like you know we're, not, we're a lot of people uh, associate you guys, you know, with the with your output from CBS. But I really feel like that that album that you guys released on Deluxe uh, Records, man. It, it really showcased of what was to come from you guys, man, in the future. But technically, um, back then, you know, artists were really getting ripped off. That was actually our first gold record. Mm. The one album. I'm not but, surprised. Um, and we found out later on, and you know, everybody's hand in the pudding and pie, and you know, it didn't happen. But it was. It, right. We found out later that this that that particular album actually went gold. Well, a million, the song a million to one, I believe, went to like all the way to number three on the charts, mm-hmm. which is 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 a big deal to to yeah. those who don't know. That's a big deal, you know, for coming from a small record label, and you guys going all the way to number three. So I can I can oh, yeah. to, totally understand where you're coming from. And the, and the gentleman that wrote it, um, his name was Teddy Rendazzo. Teddy Rendazzo he used to work with uh. Uh, Little Anthony, Anthony and Pierre Hurt and all those great legendary yeah. songs, man. So talk and about he it. He played, he Teddy played just about every instrument he could. He could play it. He, you know, maybe not to perfection, but he could mm-hmm. play just about every instrument. I remember when I went to his house, we were recording. Um, it feels so that album. It feels so good to be loved so bad. Classic album, by the way. And so. They, um, Mickey Eisner said, Look, I need you to pick up the charts to take with you to California because Bobby was out in California and we recorded it there. Was it in California? Yeah, I believe it was in California. We, and anyway, I went to Ted's house to pick it up to pick up the charts that night. Okay, when I get to the house, he he had a studio, he turned his garage into the control room. And I walked in the front door of his house and he had strings and horns. I mean, like <laughs> 10 or 12 strings, yeah. 10 or 12 horns sitting wow. in the living room. And um, he had them recorded. He did a quick mix and gave me the tape. Then he said, I'm going to give you a sheet for Bobby Martin. He sat down like he was writing a letter. He wrote <laughs> note for note. said, give this to Bobby and you give that to Bobby. And when I gave it to Bobby, Bobby said, <clears throat> now what am I supposed to do with this? He may as well produce it. Because <laughs> <laughs> Bobby only copied exactly what he did. It was it was, it was that magnificent, huh? Yes. To perfection. And, uh, but Teddy wrote that for us. Um, but he did another song for us. Um, gosh. A Million to One, he wrote. And um, I know he did. I know he did hurt, but that that was already re-recorded. Because the little Anthony did that already. Yeah, but he had (coughs) excuse me this this irritation. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But um, take your time, sir. Tanner Rendalza was awesome. He was amazing. um, He loved my voice. He loved my voice. And I only was and just sing on demos for him. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So look. So here you guys are, you know, since 1972, um, you find out that album went gold, but you guys eventually leave Deluxe and you go on to CBS Records. Yeah. So talk about that transition from Deluxe to CBS Records and working with the 
legendary arranger, the one and only Bobby Martin. Talk about that. Now that was that was we actually went to Philly International first. Whoa, hold up. And, um, hold up. We got a, a special moment right here because I don't think no one knows that. Like, I had no idea. I'm a diehard Manhattan's fan. We, we, we got a special moment. So talk about that. Talk we, about that. We had a meeting with, with Gamble and Huff, and um, we went down. And unfortunately, it didn't work out for us. Mm -hmm. Didn't work out for us. And then we... Um, my manager said, well, we'll just go back. To, we'll sign with Columbia. So she had a connection at Columbia. We signed. And she said, well, we might can't get Gamble and Huff, but we'll get Bobby Martin. <laughs> okay. So, so talk about Bobby that. Bobby Martin did all some of the stuff for the OJs. And, yeah. Legend. You know. So. Stylistics. <laughs> yeah. And Bobby Martin came with us. And the rest was history. The rest There's was history. No Without You was the first song. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, my God. Man, that album is... I love, I, you know what always stood out to me about that album? The white gloves that you guys are... What was that all about? <laughs> you know, we used to wear white gloves. Now, I, and I learned something um, about maybe about 10 or 15 years ago, a little longer, maybe about 20 years ago. Okay. Um, I was with Sammy Strand, and um, we were doing. Uh, now Sammy Strand with the OJ's. Yeah, he used to be with the little little, little, Anthony. Anthony, little Anthony. Yeah. Right. And he was telling me, <clears throat> he said, Gerald, he said, Temptations and and the Manhattans, they thought they were the first to wear white gloves. He said, nobody. We were the first, and uh -oh. so they were back in the fifties wearing gloves. Yeah, yeah. We started, and it was true. And um, but it was like um, and just a that was um, learn. That was a good education for me because okay. we talked a long time about a lot of things. But okay. when he told me that, you realize that um, in this business, it's very it's, it's no first. Somebody did it before, or mm -hmm. somebody tried it before, you know. Okay. And um, but it was an honor to sit down and even talk to him, and he told me different things about them. You know, but um, they they were the first to wear the white gloves, and so when we had made a, <clears throat> we wore the white gloves. It was part of our act. We used to put the um, turn the blue the the dark black light on, mm -hmm. and turn the lights off on stage stage, and we have like a strobe, and all you could see was those white gloves, and we should do a, a choreography like a figure eight figure eight. Oh, oh <laughs> hey, so, 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 Mr. Austin, if you don't mind, can I call you Gerald? Fine, fine. If you don't mind, so, so, Gerald, so, so, you know, I'm old school, so I like to, you know, I address my, 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 you know, my yeah, elders. So, so, look, Gerald, one thing I notice about, and a lot of people may not know this, like when you joined the Manhattans, you were the youngest member of the group. Yep. You were the youngest member of the group. And I believe, I don't believe you were even 21 years old. So how was that working with these older gentlemen? Blue, um, uh, Sonny, <laughs> Kenneth, Richard, you know, how was it being young kid? I mean, you were pretty much a kid 
and you're touring and performing, being the lead of a group of seasoned adults, seasoned grown men. How was that? What was that experience like? Well, first of all, I was 19. So my parents had to sign for me. And I had been singing in a group. And um, so it was like, um, it was like something that I was already used to. Okay. Something I was already used to. And um, uh, when I joined the guys in the group, the only difference is that they were older, but I fit right in uh, technically as, as a singer and artist, I fit right in. Okay. okay. And um, it was like making <coughs> a small transition <clears throat> to sing with them. Because when I sang with Dwight, which is my, my cousin, mm -hmm. we there were four of us right. who were singing. And um, so it was just like a transition right in, into okay. that. And okay. uh, the, the good part was the guys, they, they kept you in place. You know, they kept your head in place. They they did not play that big head or uh, mm -hmm. I think I'm a superstar now. Right. I, and I was willing to learn. Mm -hmm. and I went there with open came in with an open mind and willing to learn. No doubt, no doubt. So look, we're talking about it's 1973 going to 74, and you guys released the There's No Me Without You album. They got hits like the, the title track. Yeah. I mean, uh uh Wish That You Were Mine, which is my personal favorite. Um, I mean, this I can go on and on. That that project right there was a classic. And one of the things I noticed, it seemed like to be a developing theme of the Manhattans made some of the most beautiful infidelity songs. <laughs> 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 and, and I, I just, you know, I remember I was with my lady one time. This had to be like maybe 20 years ago. And I was listening to which I was going through some things with my woman and I played that. And I remember she coming over and nudging me and, and I was playing wish that you were mine. Cause it, I, I, I tell you that song, I was going through that particular song, like, you know, lyric by lyric, yeah. you know, word by word. So talk to me a little bit about that. What was, you know, what, what was some of the, you know, what was some of the inspiration that you, you guys came up you know, uh, as far as putting songs like that together, because I wanted, did you guys get any flack for that? Because it was so beautiful. You know, we, no, no, we didn't. And you know what was was what was? I think what what made it work for us is that <clears throat> we wrote about life. We would uh, maybe see a situation, read about a situation, breaking up, going back together, or anything like that, and we take it and make a song out of it. Blue and, and sunny were the main writers of the group. Right. And um, <clears throat> and that's how we wrote our songs. If we, um, uh, like Blue, Blue wrote Kiss and Say Goodbye. He, um, he had a dream about it. And he woke up in the morning, two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning, and sat at his little Wurzler, Wurzler piano, and Wurzler, and he started playing Kiss and Say Goodbye. And he called me after he finished and had me meet him early the next day in the studio because we, we were rehearsing. Right. And he, had me, he said, get up before rehearsal start. He played it for me. And there it was. But 
we would write songs about life, about everyday life. No doubt. And situations that we've seen or been through or seen some of our friends go through, you know, and that's how it worked. That's that's how we were able to maintain because people could really identify with what we were writing because it was about life. It was about them. Mm-hmm. And, and and I don't want the the fans or the audience to get mistake what I'm saying as far as like this is what you guys were known for. But it because, you again, like you said, you guys wrote about life, you know, up on the street. That's one of my yeah. favorite strong songs mm-hmm. off the, the Feel So Good album. You wrote one of my favorite songs. I don't know if you probably remember this one, but um, the other side of me on that. Uh, oh, wow. You had yeah. a little, you, had, you co-wrote that song. It's the last song on there. Yeah. Look in right. the mirror. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I, I love that. I love that song. And I noticed when I look at the credits, I'm like, it's, it has your name. So, you know, yeah. I, what, what I'm trying to say is like one one thing I love about you guys was your versatility. But you guys had this uniqueness of, you, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, as far as delivering the music. So what I want to talk, talk about it. I remember the night that um, the day that I wrote that song, we were at the Apollo Theater and Sonny had his guitar and he started playing. He said, and they used to call me Brown. Uh, Brown, sing this. And I just, I heard it. And um, and the words just came out. Look into the mirror, the reflection I see is the pain and agony. That's the other side of me. And before you knew it, we had, I really just about sang the whole song. In wow, the no way. Yeah. That's amazing. I love I love how you closed that album off with that uh with that particular yeah. song. You know, so so this is what I want to talk about, brother. So here we are. You know, you guys are uh, working with the legendary Bobby Martin, and you guys are in Philadelphia. Now, did you guys realize that what you was doing was going to be legendary? Did you realize, like, this, we're, we're making magic that's going to stand the test of time. What was it like working in Philadelphia with MFSB, a lot of those session musicians who worked with Gamble and Huff? Uh, we talk about Earl Young and Ronnie Baker, Norman Hare. What was it like? Did you guys ever get a chance to actually work with them? We did at the CBS convention uh, in 1972. Because the theme, right, it was 72, 73. The theme of the CBS convention was There's No Me Without You. Wow. And on our album um, that we have, Don't Take Your Love From Me, what is it? With All Our Faces. I can't think of the name of it. Um, that's how much. That's how much I love you. That's how much I love you. On the back side of that album, you see us on this big stage. Yep. We were at the Fairmont Hotel in um, in San Francisco, and it was taken during our show. And MFSB was playing for us. Okay. That was, oh, but to be in that studio, it was. It was. Um, yeah, we're talking about. Correct me if I'm wrong. Are we talking about the Sigma Sound or the studio in New York? Because I know you recorded in both. No, we record. This was at Sigma Sound. Oh, talk, continue, continue. Let's and go. you walk in that studio <laughs> and you would see anybody, any artist in that Lou Rawls, Spinners, Patti LaBelle, uh, the Blue Note. It's Notes, nine o'clock. Stylistics, Billy Paul, 
you know, on and on. Yeah. <laughs> and it was so busy. Studio stayed so busy until when we would record, <clears throat> we'd have to go down and lay. And we had a six, we had 10 songs on the album. We'd have to lay down five or six songs, rhythm. Mm. And then we'd wait another two, three months to come back in to um, finish it. Wow. That's how busy it was. And um, oh God. That's just the gambling huff. They hogging the they hogging the studio. <laughs> now I remember there's on me without you. Earl Young was on drums. Bobby Ooh. Eli was on guitar. Norman Harris was on guitar. Mm. Um God, I can't think of the bass player's name. Ronnie Baker. Right. Ronnie Baker. Ronnie, Ronnie Baker. Yeah. A lot of people I don't hear a lot about. <laughs> It's hard for me to find out information. Did you ever get a chance to meet like Ronnie? Because I know, I believe they wrote uh, That's How Much I Love You because it has that, to me, that is the only song of yes. you guys yes. that really yes. has that signature Philadelphia soul right. sound to me. What's Alan's last name? Alan wrote that. Alan Felder. Alan Felder. I'm glad Alan you Felder. you helped me out a lot here. Yeah. Alan, Alan Felder, Bunny Sigler, and Norman yep. Harris. Oh, oh man. Now, Bunny Ziegler. <laughs> Bunny Ziegler. <laughs> Talk about it. <laughs> Come on. Let's, let's he, go. <laughs> he wrote the, Don't Take Your Love From Me. I love that song. Yes. And, and these are all the people. They would be in the studio hanging out sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just it was just an awesome thing to yeah. be there. Yeah. Um, in fact, Norman Harris and Ron Tyson produced a song on us. Perfect. It's a perfect time for love. Mm. Oh God, we it was never released, but they did it. Oh man, where is that song, Mr. Austin? Where is that? I I got a tape of it downstairs, but they oh, did a man. great job on it too. I love I love that. Um, that's that that's how much I love you album. Like to oh, me, man. to me that album, and it's crazy because you guys. In my opinion, like that was really like the signature, like Philadelphia soul sound. But let me say this: when y'all follow that up with the next album, <laughs> man, you guys, you guys took it to a whole nother level. So let's talk about this. So it's 1970s. Now, by the way, that's how much I love you released in 1974. I believe that song right. went all the way up to number three on the charts as well. Yeah. So you guys always. One thing about the Manhattan is whenever you guys release albums, you always go to get at least two top ten records. That was that's what that was always gonna happen. During, during, that, the, era. during that era, during the 70s. Right. During the 70s, we had more charted records than anybody in our genre at that time. You know, there uh, were other groups that had big hits, but right. we had more charted records and we right. sold a lot of albums. And um yeah. I, I couldn't believe it. I, I never thought about it until I was with Al Goodman from Ray Goodman and Brown. And mm -hmm. he showed me in Billboard, he said, and he showed me, he said, you guys have more charted records than any of us. Yeah. Because we had, a, we had a record out every year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The 70s was crazy. Your 70s output, and this is what I want to talk about. This, this is a segue based into what I want to talk about. One thing about I loved about you guys that really separated you guys from a lot of artists and it was so much great music that came out from the OJ oh, yeah. to the Spinners. I mean, I could go on and on, moments, whatever. But you guys were not only great at releasing singles, 
mm-hmm. you guys were album oriented artists. Like a lot of my favorite songs from you guys were the B sides. Exactly. You know, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like up on the street and mm-hmm. uh do it again, like those type of songs. Those were like my mm-hmm. so so as you guys were uh, uh making this uh you know this this historic music during that period how how conscientious of it uh how conscious it what uh as far as you guys um knowing that you know let's let's not just release singles let's make great albums you yeah. know we we would um you know like um some artists back in the day then would have two or three songs that they knew weren't going to be good, like hits, we call them. And then everything else be album cuts. We never wanted to record album cuts. We wanted, re- we wanted every song that we record could possibly be a single. Mm. And um, whenever um, we were told when we were at Columbia, we have five great, five songs we knew that was good, that was going to really stand out. Well, well just give me five B-sides. Uh, no, no, no. We're not oh. doing B-sides. They actually, they actually said that? Yeah. They would say, you know, we were told sometimes, yeah, we just need some B-sides. We didn't play B-sides. Mm. <laughs> because our fans deserve better. Right. And yeah. um, we were ballad, we were uh, uh, balladeers. We had up-tempo tunes. And, um, but we Talk did. About that. Talk about that a little bit, Mr. Austin, because a lot of people I don't let me let me say this. One thing I noticed about you guys, you again, you had this very distinct sound. But during a time when disco was popping, disco was just going, everybody is doing disco. You guys just still continue to do what the Manhattans do. You guys never chase chase the uh, trends or the fans. So talk exactly. about that. I didn't mean to cut you off, but I want you to just Dude, expound, on, to that. expound on that. Let's go. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we decided. We watch other groups jump and, and follow the trend. Mm-hmm. But following the trend necessarily wasn't necessarily you. You know, um, so we decided we, we had a we had a saying that you know what, like dude, we were in the heart of the disco era. Mm-hmm. And at and we listened and we were talking about this one day at the at the end of every disco night in a club, mm-hmm. that's what they played. They played a ballad. Yeah, yeah. They played a ballad, and yeah. so, and so, and in fact, that's how love song came about. We was talking about that when Sonny and I wrote it. Same conversation, but <clears throat> oh <laughs> man, that's a classic. <laughs> up tempo music you have, people love to get close and dance. Yeah, yeah. And, and then last song, hey man, you trying to trying to make your move in? Yeah, I know that's right. <laughs> Hey, that love song. We say disco music is fine sometimes. Yes, it is, but we never dance to a love song. That's it. And, and <laughs> it was just us. And that's one thing I can. I'm glad that CBS did when we were there. Um, they wanted us to stay true to who we were, and we had up tempo tunes. And it got to a point where we did up tempo tunes. If it wasn't, if it didn't feel right, I've had oh, people tell me, you know. That that song is okay, but I like you better over here. Mm. You know? What's and one we, of your favorite favorite <laughs> up tempo up tempo tunes? Huh, I'm sorry. What's, what's one of your favorite up tempo? I can give you mine, but what's one of your favorite up tempos? Um, I would have to say I agree with you on that's how much I love you. 
and and um, great. See, I wasn't good. So you going into the eighties? Like, I, okay, okay, I, th that is a classic you right there. Back there. Okay, yeah, I talk about the, the, the Philadelphia. Yeah. It was a. In fact, if you want to stay back, if you want to talk about the sixties, my first recording with the Manhattan was up tempo tune, first mm. release. It was called a song called um, "I Can't Stand for You to Leave Me." I Ooh. can't stand for you to go. And sister, I know I've done you wrong. I've treated you so bad. But if you, oh God, I can't. Oh, if, if you ever leave me, it would be so sad. Yeah, yeah, that was a secret. You feel I only have myself to blame. Cause darling, if we make up, break up, it would be a doggone shame. I can't stand for you to leave me. <laughs> oh man, that that, that was I, I, that wasn't released on an album though. That was a single. Yeah, it was on the album. Chuck Rainey played. Chuck played the bass. I remember him thumping. He, I can see him now sitting on that yeah. thumping <laughs> boy, and Purdy was like killing it. <laughs> I remember that like yesterday. Man, see that's the thing. Yeah. Like I said when I when I about this interview, I want to be careful because I don't want to keep you here all night. But I can literally name every. I can name at least five classic songs from every album from Columbia, from the Columbia. I can name like in, in one minute. I can literally do that. Like, you know, and, and and we can be here all night just talking about the songs, because one thing you guys made it so hard for the listener to turn an album off. Like, you know, is it, once you play, once you turn on a dramatic, I mean, a, a Manhattan's album, you, you got to play the whole thing. Mm -hmm. You gotta, but you can't. And and I mentioned up tempo songs. One of my favorite up tempo songs, and I feel it's very underrated, is you guys' version of Reasons, which is on the self-titled oh album. Oh man! Talk about that if you don't mind, because we about to go in. We about to talk about the album that I believe that changed everything for you guys. We recorded Reasons uh, at the studio on Fifty, I think it's Fifty Third Street. And the engineers were Bert and Harry. I'll okay. never forget this. And um, Mickey came to us and said, man, you guys will kill this song. He was <coughs> the vice president of R&B at Columbia, Mickey Eichner. And he said we could do it. And at first, I didn't want to do it. But after I heard the arrangement, um, Bert Dicato did it. Mm. And boy, when he finished with that song, I said, oh, God, we got to do it. The, now, I, now, excuse me. Heard Bert, now Bert was working with the main ingredient around that yeah. time. Everybody plays the fool. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And um, Bert, Bert was a good, a very good producer. Mm -hmm. Quiet like Bobby, reserved. But he could, was, he was awesome. But he did that song, and we did it <clears throat> at the studio on um, 53rd Street. And um, it after he did it, when he finished it, I, I didn't. I didn't particularly think it was my type of song. I did like the song. I loved it. You killed it. You killed it. You killed it. I didn't think <laughs> you killed that, man. I love that. I love that version as much as I love the Earth, Wind, and Fire. Because you go through some runs on that song. That hey, Philip is a monster. But you go through some runs that's just amazing on that particular song, brother. Thank you. Nah, no doubt. So, so here it is. It's 1976. We released the self-titled album, yep. and this is where it gets. 
this is to me is where the Manhattans are like they're shooting and they're not the 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 the, the basket is a, a, a hundred feet. Like you guys are not missing. Mm-hmm. You guys are not missing. So you guys released the self title. Um, now, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know what was the first single, but I know from that album came "Kiss and Say Goodbye" and "Hurt." Now, now "Kiss and Say Goodbye" actually was the first single from that album. Okay. And um, now I'm gonna tell you a story about "Kiss and Say Goodbye." I'm listening. We didn't like it. Whoa! No way. We're not. It's the song. We like the song. Excuse. The song was a, was a good song, <clears throat> but we thought it was better because Blue wrote it. When he wrote it, it had more of a country feel. <laughs> and so we, Blue was then trying to get it to one of the country artists that were on CBS. And so they told Mickey, said, no, no, you guys got to record it. And when we recorded it, my vocal was a scratch vocal. Mm. The backgrounds hadn't been finished. It set in the can for for 18 months. What? They mixed it and released it. We were, I forgot where we were. Um, When they released it, Blue said, oh my God, they're trying to destroy us. Because he, we all didn't didn't think it was, uh, it wasn't finished. That's the bottom line. So so the version that we hear is not the version that you're talking about. The version you hear is the very first time I sung that song. Bass and all of that, all yeah, of they, it. They, yeah, Bobby and all did. We went down. They did the track. Okay. And Bobby had the track. And so I, when he finished the track, I did a vocal so they could put the backgrounds on. Mm-hmm. I walked in and sang it just like it is, like you hear it now. And but what was, uh, and Bobby had Bobby woke me up to this. Sometimes. <clears throat> Your best performance, not your a performance that's not your best, may be your best. Mm. And and I'm saying it like this: the feeling that I had on "Kiss and Say Goodbye" when I recorded it, I could never get it again. And when mm. Bobby heard it, when they got ready to do it, Bobby said, "No, we're not going to touch it because we tried to go back and do it again." He said, "No, we're going to leave it just like it is." And not- that song became you guys' first number one on the pop. And R&B charts. So talk about that because, man, you got a ballad that's cutting through right during the heart of disco. How yeah. did you guys' lives change after that? Because it was like it was unbelievable. I remember we were in Atlanta, Georgia, at a club called Scarlett O'Hara, and um, <clears throat> we just came off stage and um, preparing for the next show. And we got a call from my manager. And she said, um, fellas, I just called to tell you that kiss and say goodbye just turned gold. And we looked at each other like, oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. It was unbelievable. And 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 we never, it just <clears throat> we couldn't believe it. And then finally, everywhere we went. Huh? From April, Jesus Christ, till till almost end of the year, yeah. all you could hear was "Kiss and Say Goodbye," "Kiss and yeah. Say Goodbye." You know, on yeah. everywhere stations were playing it. Yeah. And 
And another little thing I got to share with you about. I'm listening. I'm listening. We played a club in Detroit called uh, Henry's Cocktail Lounge. Okay. So I know and Fox. I know Fox Theater. We sang there, and Lou Rawls was there that night. Mm, let's go. Talk. Let's talk about it. We broke it down with singing Kiss and Say Goodbye, and I was ad-libbing, and Blue said, we're going to ask Brother Lou Rawls to come up here and sing. No way. He came up there. He tore that song all <laughs> He knew the story. He didn't know the lyrics, but he knew the story. Man. <laughs> voice, you know, and he started ad-libbing, the band got a groove. And then I can't he, hear him singing that. I can't. I'm sorry, but I and I know he recorded with Philadelphia International that 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 same year. He had "If You'll Never Find Another Love Like Mine" came out the same year. Same but year. I, I I can't I can't hear him on that. So he came back there, man, <clears throat> and he just ad libbed. Mm. And when we finished, everybody was standing up in the club, and um, Blue handed me the mic. I looked at Blue like, "Well, what what do you want?" <laughs> Oh man! Oh man! She is. Lou was awesome, you know. Well, and we do things like that. We'd be in the show, and we'd see artists out there, and ask them to come up and sing. We were in Detroit another time, and we had Felipe Wynn, uh, Purvis, the bass singer for the Spinners, Kendrick, and um, that was a young lady. She used to sing with Aretha. <coughs> Sandra, I can't think of Sandra's last name right now. We had all of them <clears throat> come up and sing with us. Okay. It was like awesome. It was like wow. awesome, unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of Lou Rawls, man, he was known for like natural man, those, you know, those dope monologues. And, yeah, you yeah. Know, yeah. And, and one thing, <clears throat> one thing, and, and I'm glad you brought that up, one thing that's always that's a signature of the Manhattans, and you know what I'm about to go to is blues, blues velvet, yeah. that velvet baritone slash bass voice that he had, brother. You know, how was it like working with Blue? Talk a little bit about Blue. Well, Blue was, out of the guys in the group, Blue was my mentor in the group. Mm -hmm. And um, he took me on his wing. He, he made sure, he taught me all the songs. And he would... <clears throat> For the first, up until, wow, up until we recorded the Even Now album in mm. 2000, I never had gone in the studio with the group without Blue. The only time I recorded without Blue was when I was solo. Mm. But every time we recorded the Manhattan album, he was always in the studio. And he'd always, he would, he could relate to me of um of feelings. And mm -hmm. I would, you know, we he would talk, man, you try it this way, try it this way. Don't change the way you're singing it. Just try this and try that. Keep your feel. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and and basically all of our songs. Okay. He was there from the beginning. Okay. So that song again, that song goes go. Um that album is crazy. It got some legendary classic songs that yep. self-titled project. And I remember like looking at the uh, the back cover, I see uh, the front cover and the back cover. You guys are coming out of the um, manhole. you know coming, coming out of the manhole. And the following year, it's five guys, and the following year, it's four. 
Yeah. And 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 Ricky Taylor, he leaves the group. So what was, you know, well, what, was, what was that all about? <laughs> Richie, I'm going to go back to 1970, about 1970. And Richie was very spiritual. Mm -hmm. And Richie said, I remember in, we were in New Orleans and we had some time off. We were sitting around the hotel talking and Richie said, Gerald, God put me with this group to help make it successful. He said, once this group reaches successfulness, when they become successful, I'm sorry, he said, I have to leave. When Kiss and Say Goodbye turned gold, he came into the meeting. We had played um, uh, for that weekend and we came home and he walked in and said, fellas, um, this weekend will be my last weekend. And he said, well, he said, I don't want no money. I don't want anything. I've done what I'm supposed to do with this group. He says, time for me to move on. And he left the group and he became a Muslim. And Richie learned how to speak Arabic. Wow. Richie left us inside a few months. We saw him again. He could speak Arabic. And he Just that Yeah, he probably had been studying it all the time. Right, right. But, <clears throat> but he told me, he said, I was not meant to be here through the success. Well, that was that was that was the peak right there. Because I mean, as you guys continue to, you know, that might have been to me the peak as far as uh, charts, but as far as yeah. quality, it did not stop. Because this next album, the Feel So Good Project. Oh my God! So oh, this yeah. project right here, really, three singles come off this album. And, and another one I feel should have been released, uh, you know, but we talk about we never dance to a love song. Mm -hmm. It feels good to be loved so bad. Mm -hmm. I, I'm missing one. I'm missing one. Um, they got up on the street. That wasn't a hit. That was an album cut. Should have been right. a single. Um, you know, do it again. That should have been like, let's do it all over again. Let's do it all over again. I can't take it. Blue, no. Oh my God. <laughs> I love that song. Yeah. I, I, I love that song. And, and brother, I, I'm telling you, man, to be a young man singing with those that type of conviction, because you mm -hmm. was you was you were still in young, you was a young man. And, and and it was just amazing to hear such a young man singing mm -hmm. with that type of conviction and passion. So mm -hmm. tell me if you don't mind. Cause I ain't gonna go through every single album, but I gotta be in the fan, brother. I gotta talk about that album right there, cause that one to me is you my know, favorite, my favorite album right there of the Mads. It, my, the the conviction I have in singing, it started because I sang in church. I love singing in church. I love singing in church, and I um, it's so much that I feel when I sing in church. I can really feel the spirit. Um, and I just lose my way. And I whatever note I want to hit, I can go there. You know? And um, that's the way the guys allowed me to be um, with them. When I joined the group, um, Richie told me one day, he said, um, Gerald, I want you to really now start leading mm -hmm. you. Find out who you are. Okay. And... Um, he encouraged me a lot. Richie was very, very smart. And he kept, used to talk to me and told me, he said, and I remember him telling me that he said, you have to 
praying it into your own now. Mm. And I already had I already had the tools to do it with, you know. And uh, <clears throat> when we did the uh, It Feels So Good album. I kind of miss you. That's the one. That's the one. I kind of miss you. <laughs> that was Blue Again. Dirty Dishes in the Sink. That's it. That's mm -hmm. it. <laughs> when we sing that song, audience go bananas. See, this what I so, so talk about that. Talk about that. Like I'm thinking, like I, I'm I consider myself a, a a music connoisseur, especially of soul music. Mm -hmm. And I always wanted to know, man. I was, you know, I'm I'm born in the late '70s, so I don't remember mm -hmm. how it was, but I know I've seen video footage. I heard all the music. But I wonder how was it like being a, ba a, a, a band that was known for ballads? I would probably say mid tempo. I think you guys were the master of the mid tempo. Mm -hmm. And but you guys were doing you guys were on tours and doing shows with the you know confunction and the comedy. Like, where did they place you guys? How did that work? Like being that you guys were so smooth, man. Like, how did you guys you know, uh, go on tour like the Barcades or Confunction or the Funk Bands. Like, how did that work? How did they fit you guys in? It, it was like um, <laughs> during that era, you had fans. Our fans were were um, um, they like different kinds of music, and I remember playing with War and Parliament Funkadelic and Green. That's a, that, how do you do that? How did how do they fit y'all in? We opened up the show, and it was off the chain. <laughs> and when we finished, um, I think war. I can't remember who came on next. War or Parliament? I think it was Parliament. They took it up here, and then Funkadelic um, War came on, and and slammed the door. Yeah, yeah. But it was it was it was so the shows were so versatile then, and people. They wanted to hear. They wanted to hear those songs we mm -hmm. wanted to sing. And then also, when when the funk bands came on, they got their groove. You know, mm -hmm. and we would always go first because when you play with funk bands, when the audience is up here and you come out and start singing ballads, you bring the audience down. So, so what that, we, that never bothered you guys because you know you guys got a number one record and you yeah. guys charted higher than these, yeah. a lot of these funk bands. You know mm -hmm. that's. That's just the fact of the matter. You guys just you guys tried it higher. Like I named three uh uh kind of miss you. It feels mm -hmm. so good. And um we never did. just I'm just throwing giving you an giving the audience an example. Mm -hmm. Just those three songs on that album all ranked in the top ten. Yeah. So there was bands and other groups that did not they they didn't do that. Well, you know what happened? Yeah, so, so and there was the, the funk groups that we played with. Um <clears throat> they were people like to dance. It was still in the era where people like to dance and party and right. stuff, you know. So um, it worked perfect for us to come out and get everybody close together, and you know, and then the funk guys come on and tear it up. And okay. but most of the times when we played with the funk bands, we did outdoor concerts. Mm, okay, we, we played did outdoor concerts. Um, with them, we got big coliseums, and and actually, it was basically it was a, really a lot of outdoor concerts during the summertime, because um, on the concerts we did in in the um, coliseums, 
Oh man, we did one year um, Hampton Jazz Festival, Manhattan, mm -hmm. Spinners, Jeffrey Osborne, um, what's the young lady's name? Um, Is Jeffrey Joseph Solo? Huh? This, oh, okay, this is later, this is later on. Right, this was in, in, when they used to have the big, they still have them, but they had festivals in Norfolk, Virginia, yeah. Newport Jazz Festival. I've been to one of them. Yeah. And those are the type of shows we were doing in coliseums. Okay, okay, that's but, dope. Um, getting back to, to that that album, <clears throat> Bobby Martin did that album as well, and it it just each year it seems like it got better with what we were doing, you know, mm. Um, mm. with with Bobby. And I think the last Bob, album that Bobby did was a with us was um, "There's No Good and Goodbye." 1978. Okay. So yeah. talk about that. So tell me, tell me a little bit about Bobby Martin. Cause I never, I don't get to, I've, I've, I've interviewed Shirley Jones from the Jones girl. I've interviewed Deanna Williams, uh, mm -hmm. uh, Kenneth, uh, the mother of his three children, mm -hmm. but I don't hear a lot of people talk about Bobby Martin. What was so unique and special? Because I want to say this before you say anything, Bobby Martin, a lot of people don't know this, but Bobby Martin was also the producer for LTD at the mm -hmm. same time. So he, you and the Manhattans and LTD sounds couldn't be, they were total, total polar opposites. But yeah. <laughs> he were able to produce these two groups. So talk a little bit about uh, the, the, the uniqueness. Bobby, and the, Bobby was Bobby. a producer that allowed you to be yourself. Mm. And he just he would just curtail it. He just tighten it up and and make it fit better. He he give you 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 use your own tools, but he was there to um to like like I say to, to polish it up. He was the sweetening. Now, <clears throat> the last album we did with Bobby Martin, we did a total experience in California. With and, guess band. Who, and guess who the rhythm section was? Oh, you guys didn't have the the rhythm section in Philadelphia. Okay, okay, so you're you're in L.A. now. Um, I have no idea, brother. It was LTD. Wow. He was playing congas, and I remember that was the first time I I met Jeff, and um, we they did our whole album. I had we got another bridging <laughs> in the generation podcast exclusive. Because I, I had the album. I have them in vinyl. And I don't recall seeing that on there. Like, I had no idea. Yeah, it was LTD. That's amazing. That was amazing. So, so now, at that time, was Jeffrey, was he still playing drums? He was, but he played, I think he played percussions on this. Okay. They, okay. Yeah. Okay. So, on the session. Okay. So, so um, there's no good and goodbye. That's uh, That was the last project you released with Bobby Martin. Mm -hmm. Um. Uh, the album is 79. I uh, love talk. Um, that was also a, a very slept on album. That got one of uh, my classics, uh, Memories, The Way You Were. You do yeah. to me. You you do. You and Gladys Knight, you guys do, in my opinion, the best rendition of that song. But in 1980, you guys link up with Leo Graham and Paul Richmond. Yeah. Now, they were just at the time, they were working with Tyrone Davis. So tell me about the separation, like what happened? Why, why did you guys leave Bobby? And and how did you guys end up working with uh, Leo Graham and Paul Richmond? Well, that was a, that was like a business move. 
We didn't have anything to do with it. Um, we tried to get Bobby. We wanted to keep Bobby. But at, at, I think at that time, that Bobby had moved to California. Um, but um, I, I don't know what happened with Columbia and, and Bobby Martin. Um, but we went, then we decided, they wanted, They told us, this is what they told us. They wanted to change up. Wow. So we went to George Tobin. Okay. And we went to Leo Graham. And we had a tune with George Tobin called Blame It on Love. Smokey Robinson ended up doing it and releasing it. Yeah. That was yeah. And awesome. it became a hit. It became a hit for him. Yeah. It became a hit. But um, we did um, in the first album, um, I think George did part, was the first a second album with Leo. I think it was the first album he did, George Tobin did a part of it. That's the Black Tie, the Black Tie album. Yeah, Black Tie, you're right. I love that yeah. album. You got so many of them sleeping in it. Yeah. <laughs> don't worry, I'm, don't worry, Mr. Austin. I'm going to remind you because, like right. I said, you guys, during that era, like to me, the consistency, again, man, you guys made it hard to turn an album off, man. And I want to talk, talk to me a little bit about working with, because from the, from that era with uh, Leo Graham and Paul Richmond, it produced songs like Shining Star, Just mm -hmm. one, one Moment Away, I Was Made For You, Just The Lonely Talking Again, which was uh, redone by Whitney Houston. And one of my favorite songs, if you don't mind expounding on a little bit, um, uh, Girl of My Dreams. Ooh, Lord. And the vocal, you talk about them runs again, brother. Brother, that, you, woo, I'm going to let you go. Song, I'm going to let you go. That was song, like something that I, Girl of My Dreams, I remember. It was like one of those songs that I always wanted to sing, and I always wanted to write. Mm. And, um, <clears throat> oh, my God. We did that song, and Leo used to sing all the songs. In, okay. in his falsetto, Leo couldn't really sing. <laughs> oh, he was like me. <laughs> but Leo could, he could, he could tell you how he wanted that song to feel. And then, but he would never take you out. He would never take me out of my feeling. He just would express mm -hmm. what he was feeling. And he said, now you mix them up. For instance, yes. um, Shining Star. When we did Shining Star, they raised the key so to be at the top of my range. Kind of like how they did with uh, Levi Stubbs and the Four Tops. Yeah. He didn't want me to sing that song in my natural range. Mm. They, they wanted me to have that little reaching for it. That urgency, that urgency. Yeah. Yes. Um, but Leo was a great producer. And the ranger, James Mack, ooh. Mm. <laughs> James Mack was awesome. Um, oh, Oh, uh, oh, he had a thing on uh, Girl of My Dreams. Apple of my eyes, you're oh, my cherry pie. Sweet taste the wine at the right time. If someone should ask me why, I just can't deny you've captured me. And he had the strings. He had a liquid. One thing. <laughs> you hit that one part where you, where you say, you say, <laughs> Oh, when you say, oh, that, that, you know yeah, what I'm yeah, talking yeah. about? <laughs> oh, oh man, God. like, I, you, 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 you kill. That's what I play that song. I always like that song, but now I, as I'm 
in my 40s. Like, I, I appreciate that song so much. Like, I remember my mom playing it as a kid. Mm-hmm. And, like, um, After Midnight album. That album. Right. In black households, I, I can only speak of, what, what, in my household, that album was played like we breathe air. Mm-hmm. That album, that album, you know, and and I, it's something about the arrangements of uh, of, of James Mack and and the production from Leo Richmond, um, and, mm-hmm. and, and uh, I mean it's it's amazing. So so tell me, how was it like working with? Because you guys produce a lot of great music with those guys, man. We did. What I loved about recording with Leo and James, we did one song a day. We'd go to Chicago and stay two weeks or go and stay a week. If we stayed a week, we did five songs. Mm-hmm. songs. And he would, after we recorded, then we'd go back and we'd do, we'd work on it. We'd, you know, start put adding vocals and taking vocals out and changing it. But it was it was very relaxed. And um, um, James Mack was, he would get out there and sit on the piano and he'll play the parts and he'll sing the parts. And what mm-hmm. I loved about him when he recorded, <clears throat> we did not record, we recorded as a group background. Mm-hmm. We used, that was the first time I'd ever seen it happen. We recorded on individual mics and it was mm-hmm. tracks. It wasn't like all the vocals, the first set and you do it again. Right. No. Wow. We had, we would all be out there together singing, but Mm -hmm. each vocal had his own track and then he put it together. It was unbelievable. Shining Star was unbelievable the way they recorded it. And that was- I had no idea. Yeah. I had no idea. And and, and Shining Star, after we did Shining Star, I realized our two biggest hits were country tunes. (laughs) Shining Star, as much as it can be. Down, down, ba, down, da, down. Yeah, down, yeah, down, yeah, yeah. Kiss and say goodbye. Yeah, it's the same thing. Wow. And um, but you know, I, I have to tell you, we recorded all those songs, and and we were appreciated all over the world. Mm-hmm. But the place that touched my heart for South Africa. Mm. We went to South Africa two years after apartheid. Oh man, talk about it. And we were supposed to play for four nights. Mm-hmm. He played 15 days back to back. And we found out when we got there, <laughs> as, as Troy said, we were the Beatles in their heyday. When we landed at Johannesburg, we had a press conference. And after the press conference, we went out to get our luggage. Mm-hmm. That was a few thousand people in the airport waiting for us. Mm. And as, as we each day that we were there, the crowds got bigger and bigger. Um, you know, and, and our music was passed down to the children. They took mm-hmm. us to a school and we said, these little kids don't know nothing about Manhattan. They came <laughs> out there saying kiss and say goodbye. <laughs> you know, and, and um, it was during apartheid, we found out that all of our music was played in their homes. Wow. Manhattan's was played basically the um, 
out of all the music around, our music was played more than any other group in our genre. Wow, that's amazing. And and the opening night at the Standard Bank Arena, we were in the tone and we started singing Overture. And I swear to you, the building started vibrating. That's how loud and, and screaming the audience were. And they sang, they sang every song with us for two and a half hours. Jeez. And it, we, you know, yes. It, 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 we, we were filling out, filling up venues from 10,000, 10, 20,000. We played Derby at the um, at the soccer field, held 30,000 people. We mm. had 30,000 people. Wow. So you guys had no idea that your music impacted, you know, international, you know. Exactly. Not like I, that. Now, was that you guys' first time uh, performing out of the country? No, that was the first time going to South Africa. Okay. Japan was the same way. Okay. We Japan, it was the same thing. On the mm. same scale. Um, <clears throat> we went to last year, two years ago, we went to Brazil for the mm. first time. Just like it. And you know what was funny? They wanted to hear South Africa, Brazil, Japan, the Caribbean. They loved our hits. But right. they won't hear some of the other songs on the album. And those songs, some of those songs we weren't doing. And we actually got there, put it together in a medley so that we could sing it for our fans there. They loved every bit of it. See, that's that's me. That's I, I, when, I, when I go to see you guys, because I've seen you guys perform one time. And the show, you guys killed it, of course. But, man, I swear, I wish I could have heard, you know, do it again, man. I, I would love to see you perform that one or the other side of me or – just the lonely talk, like that black tie album, the, the, <clears throat> that entire album, I feel like is 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 a classic. So it's is you know that's the the significance and the mm -hmm. impact. I want you to know, Mr. Austin, and and our uh, beloved brothers, um, who's no longer here from the Manhattan's, from you know uh, Kenneth Kelly, uh, uh, Wally, you know uh, yeah. Blue, uh, Ricky. I want you guys. I want you to know, man, that we love you. And we appreciate everything that you have, have, have given us, brother. Like you, you, you've been so, so influential as far as uh, black culture, black music and music in general. Mm -hmm. You know, it's something I would like to say. This is our 58th year. And we have managed to be. Um, to, to be out here 58 years and, and have the receptions reception from our fans, the love from mm -hmm. our fans, is because we always stayed humble. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We always took time for our fans. And we realized that we were playing to serve our fans. And um, it, it, it it has taken us a long ways, a long way. And um, we still get that warm reception no matter where we go. The same way, uh, and it's because First of all, and I, I remember back in the day, we used to get up and go to radio station at, to be on the shows at, on the morning drive at 6 o'clock. Okay. And a lot of artists wouldn't go at 6 o'clock. Mm. We were there at 6 a.m. in the morning. Mm. Okay. And would come back at drive time in the evening if they wanted us back. You know, um, we would go to one stops, sign autograph, meet people, you know, and, and that's a big portion of being an entertainer. Um, you don't have to make yourself too accessible, 
But when you're around your fans, you got to show a little love and humility, you know. And that's what we always, something we've always done. Where did that come from? Like, wh- how did you guys, you know, I, I like to ask artists that, like, where does that come from? Where, How do you guys stay grounded? Because, again, you guys, you know, pretty much dominated the, the, the 70s, early 80s, man. So it's, you know, you, you, you can have artists develop this diva mentality, but you guys... Mm-hmm. You know, listen to you t- talk. You, you seem very humble and very grounded. Where did it come from? It just it. When I joined the group, they were never like that. Mm-hmm. They were never like that. They they were always humble. You know, when I got in the group, Kenny, Richie, um, Sonny, Philip was there, and Blue. They were always humble. You know, if somebody wanted an autograph, I don't care what we were doing, we mm-hmm. stopped. And we gave it to them. We would talk to anybody. People want to hold your conversation. <clears throat> we had a thing that we wouldn't tell a person, well, I got to leave. I don't have time. If we had, we were in a rush, either our road manager come up and say, well, they can't, they got to leave right now. But we would never tell them. Mm-hmm. Either the promoter or the road manager would have to tell them because right. we would stand there, you know. Um, so, but it was, um, that's just the way we are. We've always been that way. No doubt, no doubt. So, look, you guys wrapped up your uh, your tenure on Columbia. You know, I want to fast forward a little bit uh, with the Back to Bases album. You know, this is the last song I want to talk about as far as your, your Columbia uh, output. But that Where Do We Go Wrong is, yeah. again, one of my favorite vocal performances. And it also introduced us to a legend that we did not know at the time. But if you don't mind telling us, Miss Regina Bell, talk about that, man. Let me tell you something. Regina impressed me so much. We had a song that I did with B.J. Nelson, group did with B.J. <clears throat> called "Don't Say Not Don't Say No." Oh God, yeah, "Don't Say No to Love." Mm-hmm. Don't say no to love tonight. And um, so when we that was the single that was being released from that album. Okay. <clears throat> and Regina, uh, BJ couldn't go out on the road with us. Mm-hmm. He was on tour with another artist. Mm-hmm. And so we started auditioning different young ladies. And we had chosen one lady. And um, we told her we'd get back to her. Mm. And so Vaughn Hopper, DJ used to be on... Uh, Quiet Storm, WBLS. Mm-hmm. He called Blue, say, hey, Blue, don't leave rehearsal. I got somebody I want you to hear. And he brought Regina Bell. The band stopped playing Don't Say No to Love. Boy, I'm going to tell you, like old school, she stuck that foot out there. <laughs> <laughs> and she owned that song. Yeah, yeah. She owned it. And right then, I said, Blue, she left, so we got to get her. That's the lady. And we all agreed that she was the one. Right. And then <clears throat> she recorded. We worked and we worked. And um, so when we recorded with Bobby Walmack, um, we wanted her to do a couple of songs, do a song. Mm. And that's when Bobby reco- uh, brought us Where Do We Go Wrong. And mm. um, Oh my God! The rest is history. <laughs> That's a way. That was a great way for you guys to go out, man. That was y'all. You guys went out with a bang, man. I, yeah. I love. 
yeah. I, I love that back to basics project. I believe Bobby did. I believe uh, I'll prove my love to you. Or, yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah. He I'm did a couple. Trying yeah. To trying to prove my love. He did a couple of uh, uh, tracks on that. So, yeah. you know, you guys eventually, you know, you leave Columbia Records and, you know, what was that like? You know, you guys was on Columbia for a long time, man, if you really think about it. So I think it was close to 15 years. That's a long time. Mm -hmm. That's and, a very long time. <laughs> and when I left the group in 87, um, that's the year we left Columbia. Okay. Okay. I think but we actually got out of contracts before then. Mm -hmm. okay. And, um, but it was in the early eight, uh, like right after Maury Brown did uh, Too Hard to Stop It album. Mm -hmm. and, uh, we left Columbia then. Now, no. And, now, now, there was, you know, you guys leave Columbia now. Did when you were making that last album, were you talk thinking about, you know, uh, becoming a solo artist? Because that, but that is what I'm about to talk about next. I would like to talk about because your your solo career is is very very underrated, and I want to get into two particular songs. Okay. And you, are, I think you know what I'm talking about. But I, before I get into that, you know. Did you ever think about going solo? Because to me, I always looked at Gerald Austin as he he can he can be a solo artist. You know, he has the magic voice. And I, how wanted, I wanted to be a solo artist, um, but when I was when when I decided to go solo um, with the group, <clears throat> there was we got to a point where we were working so much mm -hmm. until we didn't get a chance to rehearse, and when we did rehearse, we would go with the same thing over and over again. And it became a job to me. Mm. And um, wasn't no attitude. I wasn't mad at nobody. Mm -hmm. Like that. I walked in the meeting one Tuesday and said, fellas, this is my last year. I said, after this, you know, this year I'm gone. I said, I'll stay here until you get somebody. But I'm, I'm going to go. I had no deal. I didn't know where I was going to get a deal from. And... Um, so in that same year, about but just before, actually in the process of me after telling them that, um, they got Roger Harris to come in, and just as Rogers came, Roger came in, I had uh, got a deal with um, Taj Records, which was a subsidiary. Later became a subsidiary. Of Motown. Motown, okay. I didn't see, I didn't know that. I thought you were signed directly to Motown. Yeah, I did. I signed with Taj, and after the very first album, mm -hmm. they bought my contract out. Oh, and, okay. And they um, re released fact, the album. Did they re release that first album? I don't know. They may have. I mm. don't know. That's self titled. Because I looked at um, I looked at some of the songs on that album. Look a little different. A couple of songs from the, uh, the original album that that's so made album. a compilation. You okay, know. okay. So, oh, so I know I've been getting some nice checks. So <laughs> <laughs> I know that's right. I know that's right. So, so, <laughs> so it's safe to say that the transition was it was it was pretty smooth as far as you yeah. know. Yeah. Okay. That's good and, to hear uh, because that's good to hear because a lot of times when you hear about groups, you know, uh, artists leaving a group, there's always you know there's a lot of time we hear about uh, uh, tension and things like that. So it's. Mm -hmm. it's it's refreshing. No, it wasn't. It wasn't nothing like that. Um, I just felt like I needed a new challenge. Mm. So I did, and 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 God bless me. I got a deal with Taj Records, and we did 
In fact, after the first single, Take Me Where You Want To. Woo! You ain't waste no time. <laughs> you, no. Waste, you ain't waste no that. Let's, let's go. Let, let's just get into it, Mr. Austin. So, so here we are. Oh, I don't want to. Let me go here, brother. This is, <laughs> when, when I released, when Gerald Busby heard, Take Me Where You Want To. The late Gerald Busby. I'm making a move to get mm. me to Motown after the first single. Brother, when I heard that song, I'm thinking to myself, no disrespect to the Manhattans, but man, <laughs> it would have been dope if you could have worked, if you could have did music with the Manhattans and had a solo deal because I heard somebody once say, and I think this is ridiculous. Matter of fact, they said it in the unsung and I totally disagree with them. I don't remember the brother's name, but he said if Gerald had stronger material, he could have been, and I'm thinking to myself, I said, did you not hear Take Me Where You Want? Did you not hear Slow Mo 